My co-founder and I, we'd work together at a company called Behalf, New York and Israel-based fintech. And we started to try to explore different ways of making the process for providing these tools have like a low or no integration workflow. We didn't want to provide another set of APIs or an SDK for someone to integrate. We wanted to be able to make a code base editable just by getting access directly to the code base. We have a GitHub application that gives us full access to our, our customers' code base. What we didn't know is if this was even possible. I'm Jake Lukovic, co-founder at Flycode. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Jake Vakovic made a way to free developers from product edits and make web apps editable. All this and more on Code Story. Jake Vakovic started his career in sales and eventually moved into the product world. He loves to cook and finds it relaxing and a good way to unwind. Primarily, he loves to cook steaks and likes to integrate chemistry into cooking, which aligns with the recipes he likes. In addition to this, he loves to mountain ski, starting out when he was one year old. He was the kid on the leash, he says. Jake noticed that capacity for engineering resources was scarce across the board, while the demand for experimentation in product was very high. He sought to fix this problem by creating no-code edits for your code itself. This is the creation story of Flycode. So Flycode makes web apps editable. The way that we do it is actually you know, quite unique. We've approached the market in a very different way than maybe some of the incumbents would. And so if you think about your website, you have a lot of tools out there that make editing a website much easier. You have Webflow, you have Wix, WordPress, many more like that. If you think about your designs, everyone talks about Figma. It makes it so much easier to edit your designs and to collaborate. But when you start to think about your web application or a native application, a lot of that, almost all of the dependency falls on your engineers to build that. What we sought out to do was to provide a level of tooling that enables non-technical folks or product managers, marketing teams to be able to edit their web applications without solely relying on their engineers. And the effect is that there's a huge scarcity in development resources and the demand for product iteration and experimentation is so high that you need to figure out ways to incorporate those key stakeholders into this code contribution process without them knowing how to code. It sounds like no code, but the way we've approached is actually by connecting directly to your code and enabling editing on top of the code base. So it's almost no code for your code. Okay, well, let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? We started two years ago in terms of the ideation process. My co-founder and I, we'd work together at a company called Behalf, it was New York and Israel-based fintech. And 
we started to try to explore different ways of making the process for providing these tools have like a low or no integration workflow. We didn't want to provide another set of APIs or an SDK for someone to integrate. We wanted to be able to make codebase editable just by getting access directly to the codebase. So we have a GitHub application that gives us full access to our, our customers' codebase. What we didn't know is if this was even possible. Could we take a you know, bespoke complex code base and very quickly make it editable? So what we did, which was I think a unique approach to proving that it's even possible, is we started to talk to a handful of third-party uh, development agencies went through different specs saying, hey, this is what we're trying to build. Is it possible? And it was from that process that we understood the challenges, but more so that it was actually feasible to do. And it, and it took many months for us to get to that stage, but it was you know, a very important process for us to even, one, understand if we could do it, and then two, have an initial scope of what we wanted to build before we found a CTO to join us and start building the first version. Before building that first version, and, and maybe a little bit into that first version, tell me about some of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make on your approach. And you alluded to some of those, but dive into them a bit about you know feature cut, technical debt, how you're approaching solving the problem, and, and specifically how you coped with those decisions. There's always different areas where you have to make compromises, and then those decisions often resurface. And it's when they resurface that you can gauge whether you made the right decision or not based off the outcome if you then decide to go you know, down path B, which you initially neglected in the beginning. So part of what we, we really had to decide was, one, if we're connecting directly to code bases and supporting web applications, there's probably four to five most popular web app frameworks. So we had to pick one. We started with React. You know, ultimately that was the right decision for us, but the challenge that we then had to experience is as more companies came in and we said, hey, is this a pain that you have that we can try to solve? They may have been using Vue or Angular or PHP. And so we couldn't actually support them. And so this was always a, a, you know, a challenge for us in the beginning as you had to figure out how to target the right people initially. Then the next layer, which is maybe a little bit more technical, but when we think about a web application in the front end, you have product copy, you have design level things with the CSS and design assets. And so we started with product copy as the ground floor. This is what we're going to allow you to edit without needing an engineer in the loop. And because we started there, you have product copy that can be in a resource file, which has like a ID or a key value pair to make it more easy to identify, or it could be hard coded, meaning it's just text in the code. And we started with the resource files to identify the product copy, which was easier. But what we found was that the higher value was in the hard coded text because that was even harder to change. It, it required more engineering time than you know, organized text. I'd say the trade-off there was we went down the easier route and it limited some of the value propositions and pulled us more towards like a localization market. And then once we started to support hard-coded, which was a much harder product to build, and what we ultimately did, it opened up a huge amount of doors, especially with larger enterprise companies. 
you know, from that point, and this is, I think it's a good segue with the, you know, further opportunities. You mentioned enterprise companies. How did you build your roadmap? How did you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build to progress the product? An analogy that I, I think of is, you know, when you are building a puzzle, right? You get a box and you have, you know, a thousand pieces and you dump them out on a table. It's a bit overwhelming at first. And so you start with the borders and that that makes it easier. And so I think that for us, a lot of the initial stages were, you know, part of the kind of building that border. And some of that can be guesswork. But as soon as you start to have a little bit of a structure, you can start filling out the middle pieces. And so for us, when we started to get customers to try the product and use it, it made it much easier for us to think about what are the next steps. Having a product that was fully self-serve and low integration made it much easier for us to take more of a, a PLG approach where uh, product-led growth and our customers are helping us to define what else they want to edit. You know, what's next? Do they want to edit the images in their product? Yes, okay, so we then go out and, and support that. Do they want us to integrate into a, a third-party solution like a Netlify for deploy previews, saying I want to edit off of the deploy preview. And so as our customers started to come to us and tell us what they wanted to see, that's where we started to help define the roadmap. And it's made us much faster. So it's kind of a chicken or the egg, but really it's the customers who should be defining what they want to see. And then you can put that in the roadmap accordingly. So let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And, and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? So team for us is you know, probably the most important piece. And I think it came from previous experience at other companies where you know, on paper, somebody can join and you're like, wow, this is going to be game changing for us. But they might have not been the right cultural fit. And so even somebody who is a winning horse in, in one company might not be the right fit for another. And since we had some experience with that, we were very careful about some of our first hires. And, and the truth is we had some churn at different points where we thought we had the right, right people and they were great, but it might have not been the right fit for us. So when we think about building the team, there's skill level in wherever they're being hired, if it's engineering or sales or design, whatever it may be. And then there's the cultural fit. And so, you know, I think those are really two of the key pillars for us as we look at, it, at uh, how we hire. And then there's a timing factor. You know, it's, it's challenging in, in an early stage company, you have different waves of needs. During certain times, you may have more hardcore development and other times you may have more of a go-to-market approach. So having folks that are, you know, dynamic and, and able to deal with change quickly is key. Like we have two of our engineers right now, they're helping with the aspects of go-to-market, like writing certain cold email templates. And you would never expect a, somebody with an engineering background to want to do that or to do that. But, you know, the right people with that kind of roll up your sleeves mentality is super critical. Okay, well, let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? This would be kind of you know, bringing that CTO on, bringing the, or building that first version of the product, or have you been fighting this as you grow and gain traction? 
it will continue to shift over time where as we start to tackle new problems and to provide new solutions, we'll have different limitations on scale. One of the key decisions that we made in the beginning was around our go-to-market of connecting directly to the code base. And because of the connection to the code base, it allows us to continue to model you know, new areas of support. So as we started with the product copy and then we moved to images and as we continue down the line to areas of CSS, what's unique is we can actually push that out to all of our customers because we're continuously scanning their, their code versus saying, hey, here's a new API endpoint or you know, download this new version. So in that area, we see a lot of room for scale. But I think as we continue to to expand, you know, we may find different areas that, that we run into challenges. But we're, we're very fortunate in the fact that we we have the trust of, of development to start. And so with that, we can kind of continue to present new new solutions versus sometimes if you start earlier in, in like, let's say the design process, and then you want to approach from you know, the engineering side, you then have to gain the trust of engineering, which is really the, the hardest part of the, the process. So I'd say that's from like a product standpoint. And then you know, from a sales and go-to-market standpoint, selling to developers is, is challenging. And so you, you have scale issues there on how do you want to continue to get exposure? And you know, content, educational content is a great way, but that's a long game. Um, so I think at this stage, we are having different areas of scale questions on like, how do we 10x acquisition and exposure to, to what we're building? We have ideas on how to, to tackle that, especially from an ecosystem standpoint and integrating into other platforms. But that's definitely a challenge when you're focused on developers as your you know, ideal customer profile. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? It probably changes every month, but I think that there are times where you hit these different milestones. And I can remember when we had our first customer who found us, signed up organically. It wasn't like a friend of a friend doing us a favor. And I think that it's moments like those where you see others using what you've built and getting value from it and wow this is you know really amazing this is solving a pain that we have that doesn't always happen and some it's not the right solution for but when that happens it feels really amazing to say i just spent called the last year building this and now it's actually creating value for others and so i i think part of that is when i you know, step out and i have time to reflect it's about the journey and the different you know, inflection points to get there. And I hope to, you know, years from now have that, have those same moments of thinking back to, you know, hey, I was on the, re-listening to the Code Story podcast and we were just doing product copy and, and now look at us, look at where we are, you know, the zigzag path to get there. So I think those moments of reflection are really key and time flies, honestly. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So one of the the big mistakes that we made in the beginning was we actually raised some money from a, a group of angels, including you know, previous founders that we had worked with. And we raised ultimately raised um, a couple million dollars. And 
And I think that was a mistake. We actually didn't need to raise that much. The VC market was booming in the past few years and now we're in a bit of a downturn, but the amount of money that we actually needed in the beginning was, was much less. And it would have changed, I think, our mindset of, of how we wanted to approach the problem and you know, how we wanted to use our resources. So I think half the amount would have been would have been perfect for us. And so I think that's something that is a fallacy that a lot of founders have is that if you raise a lot of money, you're automatically going to be successful. And so when we went through Y Combinator, we actually just just finished up the batch. Last week was a demo day for us. It's one of the things they drill into founders around money does not equal success when you're building a company. There's a lot of other areas that are, are more critical. And so we lived through that and could relate to that, especially during the, the Y Combinator batch when you know, other companies may have been in similar positions as us or others, you know, right at the beginning of, of just starting. And so I think that was a mistake that I could relate to. Okay, so tell me what the future looks like for the product and for your team. So for the future of Flycode, our vision is really to connect product iteration and experimentation directly to the code so that your non-technical teammates can iterate and experiment without having any dependency on engineering, such that engineering can really focus their time on, on building core features. And so we really think that you know, the future of product delivery is a platform that's enabling autonomy for, for different teams, while also creating this level of collaboration where the, at the end of the day, we see the code as, as the source of truth. And so as we continue to expand our use cases, we, we think about things from like a vertical integration standpoint and a horizontal integration standpoint. Vertical being, you know, the depth of what we're enabling you to edit. And then the horizontal being, you know, what is your current development workflow from defining a feature, to designing, to developing it, testing it, and then all the way to iterating or experimenting. And so there's a huge ecosystem of tools out there. We see ourselves as a platform where you can bring your own stack. We don't want to make you force you to use, you know, us for call it experimentation. We'd rather integrate into a platform like Split.io or Flagship for A-B testing. And the same way we think about design, if you want to bring your tools with Figma or Envision, whatever it may be, we want to be able to almost be this gateway to your code where if you want to see changes happen, we can push those into the code base and then push that information back out to these other platforms to create this kind of cohesive workflow. Many years down the line, you know, and again, letting our customers define that path for us. Netlify for deploy previews is, is really the next step for us of adding editing capabilities there. But, you know, there's so many different parts of the ecosystem that we want to tap into and, you know, only time will tell in, in which areas we, we continue from. Well, Jake, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name someone you look up to and why. So at my... My last company, I actually, I stayed there for uh, seven years. I practically lost my ability to call myself a millennial. You know, I joined when I was still in college, went to a small school up in Vermont called Middlebury. I vividly remember thinking, oh, I'm going to go into investment banking or, you know, oh, I 
should go work at a big tech company. And I sat down uh, with a an alumni from Middlebury, a guy named Alex Finkelstein, and, and he was a, a partner at the time at Spark Capital out, out of Boston. I said, how do I sit where you're sitting? And he really pointed me down the direction and said, hey, look, you should either you know try to start a company or join an early stage company, see how it's built. And if you know that, then it's much easier to sit where I'm sitting, where I'm thinking about you know investing in, in companies every day. And so it was from that point where you know, we had a, a good conversation from there and he introduced me to one of the portfolio companies that had five to 10 employees. And I ended up joining as an intern and I stayed on. I was like, my my job, I stayed on my senior year and until, you know, over maybe a year and a half ago, I was there. And so the, the founders of that, that company, two brothers, Benji and, and Shai Feinberg, they are, one, were amazing founders, but two, they were both mentors in different ways to me. And so I learned a lot from them. And, and I found that both have been really wonderful friends and mentors and investors in, in, in Flycode. And so I feel very comfortable asking them questions that I couldn't really ask others or relying on them as a, as a resource. So I definitely look to them as a you know, key figures in my professional career and, and continued career as, a, as an entrepreneur. We talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you go back to the beginning, if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different or where would you consider taking a different approach? If I were to go back to the beginning, I think I would have spent more time trying to get early design partners or gauging, you know, certain areas of of demand or or problems that we were solving. I think broadly, we knew we were trying to tackle a problem that a lot of companies experience, but because it was a technical problem that we were solving, we felt that we needed to have a product that they could use. And I think that this was a, an error that, that we made where you know, we could have spent more time validating, you know, the devil's in the details really, so validating exactly where the problem was and, and what part of the workflow and so I think we would have learned a lot of things that took us a few months to learn, but learned them faster and before we had invested in, in building a, an initial product. So that's something that I, you know, if I start another company again or, you know, a new feature within Flycode, we spend more time kind of doing that validation process and then getting a real user to say, if you solve this problem, that will be like key for us, I'll pay for that. And, and I would encourage anybody who's you know, thinking about starting something to just spend more time talking to the customer and really understand the motivations around what they're trying to solve and and why. You got one more question, and I'm curious if it'll be a similar answer. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? If I'm sitting next to somebody on a plane and I somehow am able to pull out the fact that they've just built the next big things, I'm giving props to myself because usually I just put my headphones on and the neck pillow and I'm out. Yeah, if we're we're talking, I'd say, you know, enjoy it. There's a lot of different layers of of stress in the day-to-day and it sort of all that kind of melts away when you look back at what you built. And so I think the advice there would be trying to find a balance 
because it's so easy to burn out and burning out it's not only from working long hours it, you can burn out from a lot of different areas maybe just you know lose passion in the idea or the space so i i would say that trying to find that that balance is most important because it's a marathon you know you can do a 80 100 hour week you could work 7 days a week and you may get there faster but i don't know if you enjoy it as much That's great advice. Well, Jake, thanks for being on the show today and thanks for telling the creation story of Flycode. Thank you, Noah. Great to be on the show. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.